Hello, I'm Heat. And I'm Rocket Kid. And And this is Ordinary Chaos. A podcast about ordinary life. Because you don't have to be famous to be interested. What's normal for me might be unusual for me. Let's do this! With a quick heads up before we dive into my excellent conversation with Deborah. Deborah's art is primarily social commentary art, and we do spend a lot of time talking about some of the topics that are reflected in her work, including domestic violence and sexual exploitation of children. If you or someone in earshot needs to maybe not hear that right now, this is your warning. Heat here with Deborah Calkins. She is a fiber artist that does uh, largely social commentary artwork. Talk to me about that, Deborah. I have been doing social commentary artwork for quite some time, and it's not something I can stop doing. <laughs> Good. Yeah, even if. You know, my mind may pull my me or my art may pull me in another direction. The social commentary always comes back in. And the last three years, I've been spending um, a lot of focus time on that. What types of commentary are you making? A lot of women's issues. And the last series was the What If series, which asked a whole series of different kinds of questions for people to think about. You know, what if everybody had enough to eat? What if politicians told the truth? (laughs) What if women trusted men? You know, there are 19 of those pieces. (laughs) What if everyone had a home? The purpose of the exhibit was to present questions for people to think about solutions and, and various issues from a different perspective maybe we as a culture have these issues and maybe we should do something about them I don't view my job as an artist to provide solutions I view my job as an artist to ask questions that make you uncomfortable it sounds like you're good at that (laughs) part of that just happens um, naturally (laughs) And part of it's deliberate, um, not always. Um, sometimes I kind of realize after the fact that I've just kind of, oops. <laughs> and, and at the same time, not oops, because it's like, well, what did you think was going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> so you said that exhibit had 19 pieces, which would be 19 different questions, right? 19 different questions, yes. And so did you choose 19 because you had 19 questions or did you have more than that and decided these were the best 19 or like how does how does something of that scope come to be well it's a for me the process in this particular case and a lot of the series work that I do has to do with I do I do a bunch of research and then the what if series, I started a series of questions. And pretty soon I had pages and pages of questions. I still have pages of questions. 
that I wrote out. And every time I come across something, I go get my book and write out another what if question. But I got to tell you, by the time I got 19 done, I didn't want to do anymore. <laughs> That's I'm done. So what's the process for actually making one of these pieces once you have the question? On this particular series, it was the words that were important, but the backgrounds had to come out of my art. And even though I decided I ended up using a cricket cutting machine because I have injuries to my wrists and intricate cutting is no longer in my uh, repertoire to be able to do. I wanted the backgrounds to be mine. And so what I did was I took images and I manipulated them digitally and then had them printed onto cloth by Spoonflower. And then they ship it to me and then I go from there. You know, the whole process of cutting it out and there's a whole technique for doing the images, doing the words with another set of fabric and stitching. And the words were all backed with fusibles, but fusibles over time come undone. So you can't, you have to stitch it down or it's going to go wandering off somewhere. <laughs> so before this project, what are some examples of other projects? Or if like, I don't feel like you could give a summary that would include all the things. So maybe some examples of other things that you've done? I did a series called Just Another Day, which is about violence against women. It includes four pieces, and they have titles like Three a Day. In the U.S., three women a day are murdered by a partner or former partner. There's another title called Every Nine Seconds, and every nine seconds, a woman is physically harmed by a partner or former partner. Every three seconds, a woman is physically harmed, and that means anybody and everybody. One a minute in the U.S., a woman is raped every minute. And each case is treated as an individual isolated incident instead of the cultural big picture of a problem that we have in our society. Yes. That's the Just Another Day series. I have a series that I call the Torso series that includes a number of pieces, titles such as Bent But Not Broken, Unbowed. I will say Unbowed happens to be one of my favorite pieces. It's a torso that's got like seven layers of fabric that I took a heat gun to. So you can see through it. The torso has been cut in pieces and then stitched back together with embroidery stitches or fancy embroidery stitches with beads or safety pins. And it's about how life can cut you in pieces and you have to put yourself back together to continue functioning. And sometimes when we put ourselves back together, we use nice fancy stitches and sometimes we use safety pins because that's all we've got. That is beautiful. So then there's tarnished, um, which is about how we might be born nice and shiny, but life tarnishes us. That doesn't mean we can't have new dreams. 
And tarnished is made with copper, metal, and rusted fencing type things. But again, a female torso. Bent but not broken has an underlayment of a torso that's been, that's out of aluminum um, wire that's been kind of crunched and then kind of flattened out so it isn't totally flat. And then ribbons were put over it. And again, heat was applied so you can see through the ribbons because the ribbons are melted. And it's, you know, again, about you can bend me, you can do all those things, but you didn't break me. Those are three of the pieces in that series, which has a whole lot more. Well, and just hearing about them is powerful. I I would love to see them. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I have images of everything these days. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to talk about where listeners might be able to see some of this towards the end of the show. Okay. But um, I'm super interested in them. So how did you get started? Where did all this come from? When I was six years old, I was homesick from school and my mother taught me the embroidery to keep me busy because I had three siblings that were younger. And at some point she taught me to crochet. But when I was in my early teens, she taught me to sew, to make my own clothes And when I was in my very early 30s, I decided I would make quilts and rapidly discovered two things. One, I didn't like using somebody else's pattern. And two, why could I never find the color I wanted, which is when I got into dyeing fabric (laughs) and took some classes on how to do my own patterns and then you know, over the course of time, develop the style that I have now. Well, actually, I'm not a quilt maker per se anymore. And the quilt world probably would not, because it doesn't quite necessarily meet their definitions of what a quilt is. Wait, what, what details are different? I, I don't know much about quilting. So a quilting is there's a layer in between the front and the back that's usually batting. And then you're stitching through those three layers. And that's what creates the quilt. So it isn't that I don't use the quilt format from time to time, but my work almost never has batting. It's in layers a lot of times, but it doesn't still quite meet that definition of quilts. And it's definitely not traditional work because that's not, yeah, I mean, (laughs) you've seen traditional I identify with not quite traditional. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I actually left that world actually fairly rapidly because it was like, uh, I don't want to do patterns. <laughs> right. And, you know, and commercially, it's just like the fashion industry and the colors they do every year. And it's like, well, no, that's not the color I want. So I took a whole series of uh, dyeing classes to learn to dye on my own. I don't dye fabrics as much anymore. One, because I have a love of batiks and um, a lot of times that'll work. And I have Spoonflower print my pattern, you know, whatever fabric I want that I could design myself, whether it's a drawing, a painting, or I manipulated digital photos. From time to time, my brother will provide me with digital photos 
and then I manipulate him. And I think he always laughs when he sees them (laughs) as to what I've done with them now. (laughs) Because they look nothing like what he gave me to begin with. (laughs) So I think it amuses him. (laughs) Well, better he be amused than angry. Yes, yes, that's true. That's true. But I do remember I wanted to do a series called Endings, and I wanted a bunch of rusted things. So he and his wife would take motorcycle trips. And I said, could you do, you know, the next time you're out and about rusted things? And he goes, rusted things? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In the What If series, there's one that's called What If Out of the Dark Something New is Born? So that particular image, I simply manipulated the color because one of the pictures he brought back to me was this rusted old VW van with a tree growing through it. (laughs) Oh, I love the image. So it was kind of fun. That sounds fun. So at what point in this journey did you sell art or otherwise make money from doing it? My art's been basically available for sale since the late 90s. I will own that I don't sell much of it. I sell a piece now and then, partially because social commentary work isn't a comfortable kind of art to put on your wall. (laughs) No. I mean, who wants to look at it day in and day out? And I understand that, and I do it anyway. And like I say, I have sold some artwork. I mean, I did sell a piece a couple of months after the exhibit. Um, I sold one of the wedding pieces. And I did sell a piece that I did that was called Protection. And it was chain mail over um, a onesie. And it's about what we needed to um, protect our children from as far as violence against our children. I was always kind of surprised at soul, but hey, (laughs) (laughs) because that's not a comfortable piece either. No. So yeah, I sell them from time to time. I imagine that organizations would be more likely. Yes. And that's an avenue that I'm starting to pursue because among the other things I'd, you know, like to offer the organization, especially with the social commentary pieces is the artistic license to use it for fundraising or whatever, that they could use those images to help with that fundraising. So that's in my plan to pursue things of getting my work out there more broadly. Seems like a good plan. Yeah. Now for the follow through. (laughs) Familiar, familiar. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I know that you had a show in May. I did. Did you do others before that? That was my very first solo show, meaning there were no other artists in the exhibit. There was just myself. I have been in numerous group shows over the years. There's a couple of years in there when I didn't exhibit but usually there's two or three or four every year that I participated in. But the one in May was the first time that it was a solo show. 
a few years ago, I set up the goal to have a solo show and to also be in a museum and hit both of those goals at the same time. <laughs> Woohoo! Yeah, a two for one. <laughs> if it had not been in the midst of COVIDness, I may have flown up there to see it. Yeah, it. Yeah, COVID made a huge impact, and for a while, the museum wasn't even sure they'd be open. Right. And at one point they were, you know, you had to make an appointment to come in and they were only seeing like 26 people in the day. And it's like, uh, yeah, right. That's not good. But the U- museum was because I actually made the exhibit interactive in the sense that there was a way for the audience to respond to the questions. And the museum was really pleased with the interaction that participants took the time to participate. Nice. So that was that was great. And I had five by seven postcards for sale. And they were really pleased with the sales of those. So people will buy postcards of social commentary art, but not full pieces to hang on the wall. Yeah. And the, uh, at least for the What If series. I imagine that that's true for even pieces that are less prickly, just from an economic standpoint. Yes. Yes. I agree with that. Yeah. Art's expensive. I mean, because I offer um, limited edition prints for the what if exhibit, but even that isn't inexpensive, even though I tried to make that as inexpensive as I could. And the reality is for me, the work is really, really time consuming. And so um, I don't track my hours anymore. Because I really don't want to know <laughs> what I'm really getting paid and sold. I do have a piece of work that I made called Women's Work. I tracked the hours with it. And everything had to be hand. You had to use recycled materials or material user already had to own. So I made this piece. I tracked it. It took me 40 hours to do. It's about the repetitive nature of a lot of women's work. And the price is 40 hours time, whatever the current minimum wage is. So commentary built into the price as well. Yes. In this particular instance, it seemed appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> I have a piece that's actually not on the website that's called Fire. And I had it at a studio tour. And I think I was asking $1,200 for the piece. And this guy said something about the price. And I looked at him and I said, well, I've worked on that piece for a year. Did I actually physically work on it every day? No. Was it in my mind when I wasn't working? Yes. I'm pretty sure you won't pay me an annual salary for that piece. <laughs> so not only did he not pay me an annual salary, he didn't buy the piece either. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine people whose commentary is just about the price are not your target audience. No, it is not. Not at all. I did go up to the museum a couple of times, even though it wasn't expected by the museum to be there in case people had questions or whatever. And so it was fun to talk to the various people and interesting to see what their issues were. 
one, there was one about um, what if everyone had health care, and it obviously was a major big button for her. And another woman, I, there's a piece called What If Every Job Paid the Same, and that was obviously, she said she could remember her mother and her dad arguing. He was an engineer and she was a school teacher, and her mom wanted to know, well, why should you get paid more money than me? <laughs> <laughs> so everybody has their issues. Yes. Those questions have the potential to create such interesting conversations. Yes. Now I want to interview people and just ask those questions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could send you the book. <laughs> or at least copy the pages for you. <laughs> so of all the things you've created, do you have a favorite I would say at this particular point, Unbowed is my favorite. What gives it that spot? I think it's because life hasn't been easy necessarily for me. And I have put life back together a few times. And there's been times that, you know, safety pins are what I've needed to do. (laughs) Yes. And other times, you know, you can spend some time putting yourself back together and kind of smoothing it out so nobody sees. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that for some reason, that piece is from the very beginning of that piece, that piece has been a piece that stayed with me. I think there are a lot of people who would connect with that piece. Yeah, I would hope so. Because I think, you know, all of us, none of us gets life through life scot-free. So you know, there's something in life that gives you a kick in the butt. <laughs> so someone who knows nothing about you or any of your work were to run into your work, what is something you wish that they knew? Either about you or about the process or about the background? So Cesar Chavez has a saying that says, art should disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. And that's what I try to do with my art is disturb the comfortable with the thought that by disturbing the comfortable, eventually we become all comfortable. What if we were all comfortable? Yeah. What if we were? So I view my art in some ways as or I try to make subversive art. And in my definition of subversive is that you come and you look at my work. And when you leave, an opinion has changed, or your viewpoint has changed. And it was not necessarily done with your permission. But, but in that interaction, something that has, ha- has happened without your permission in advance. So if you didn't know the statistics on domestic violence in the U.S. and you walked away with a differing viewpoint and maybe you'll actually do something or contribute your money, in my mind, that's subversive because I didn't have that permission from you to begin with. Right. And it means I was successful. (laughs) (laughs) Although I did do, I curated an exhibit on domestic violence. Um, I did a, I have a piece called The Unmade Bed 
actually it's about the sex safe trade, but the, all the other artists that participated, each of them had some sort of vision on that. And there were no images of naked women or anything. Okay. Okay. At this point, the recording failed for a moment and we don't have Deborah's full explanation of what happened, but her piece, The Unmade Bed, though it contained no nudity or anything lewd, was considered by some pornographic. And that I had at my local art center. And um, some volunteers went to the director and objected. And I was talking with her and she said, she told me about it. And she said, I looked at them and said, if a local artist cannot show this kind of work at our local art center, then what are we here for? And I looked at her and I said, thank you for advocating for me. And it was clear she hadn't realized that's what she was doing. Right. But, you know, it is. You have a local art center. If I can't do controversial work at the art center, why would I give you any of my money? (laughs) (laughs) Right. When I I feel like it's a a societal theme. We're, We're in a period of history where we're pointing out things that comfortable people have taken for granted. Yes. And, and we're, we're having more conversations about a lot of those things right now. And I, my guess is that that ebbs and flows. It does. I will say that up until a couple of years ago, maybe even, even in the last four years, that those conversations weren't happening at all in my world as far as the art goes. And getting the work seen was incredibly difficult. Because people just didn't want to go there. Right. So in the unmade bed installation project, it includes a six by six foot quilt. It has a three-dimensional sculptural figure of a girl the size of a 14-year-old. And in front of her, a small rug that I made with shredded money and condoms. Oh, and the shredded money usually came from the U.S. Treasury. You can buy five-pound bags from them. Ha! Huh. Who knew? Yeah. It was 40 bucks for the bag, and I didn't have to pay for shipping. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wow, who knew? But in the statistical information that I did was the average age of the girl on the street is 14. She starts as young as nine. Their average life expectancy is seven years. And it's like, it's all around us. But it's, again, it's one of those things people don't want to see. So, yeah. Some people see it and take it in and some people see it and fight back. Yes. Against the art, not against the subject. Right. And I actually made a comment about sexual traffic to somebody and they looked at me and I said this. By saying sexual trafficking, you're putting distance. And what it really is, is a sex slave trade. And I went, okay, something I needed to hear. So yeah, that particular installation piece took me uh, three years to make. When I was working on that installation piece and I was getting closer and closer to the end, my fiber group and I had gone on a retreat. We happened to be at a church camp and there was only one other group there besides us. And um, we had this big room that was off the dining room. And these church ladies 
evidently decided that we were the entertainment because they came in to the room and started looking at our work without, I mean, they just walked in. And so we were all kind of a little startled. But I w- my quilt had pink and purple squares. And so they were kind of drawn to that. And the 14-year-old figure was, no, the 14-year-old figure was not there because that's where I was having problems. So anyway, they wanted to see the quilts, right? So the quilts um, made with the spoonflower printed squares, a friend's 14-year-old daughter had agreed to sit for, her hands were chained and the photographer put a dark background between her hands and her body. And her hands would be in different positions, you know, like closed fists, open a little, whatever. So what I ended up doing is taking those together to make like a flower arrangement. (laughs) I bet the church ladies were surprised. I got to tell you, the church ladies left rather rapidly after seeing the quilt. (laughs) There were a couple of them who asked some questions. And I got to tell you, not a single member of the fiber group said a single word, right? Through that whole interchange with these church ladies. (laughs) So they laughed. And they looked at me and they said, well, we all kept our mouth shut because we figured you needed to figure out how to talk about this. And so I'd been trying to figure out how to do the 3D figure. So we were had gathered one night in the living room kind of area. One of the women goes, I don't want to talk about this subject. I don't want to hear about this subject. I don't want to see anything on that subject. I don't want to go there. And here's some thoughts on how to fix that problem. Oh. And I remember thinking, and this is why I'm with this group. <laughs> They still have my back. It doesn't matter. I mean, they've watched me go down this. None of the the rest of them mostly do social commentary art, but they still have my back. That's fantastic. So, yeah, I feel most fortunate to have those women in my life. Yes. So what's your biggest frustration? Not in in social commentary. I mean, in in work. (laughs) Well, My biggest frustration, I suppose, has to do with exhibiting the work and getting people to see it. As far as the act doing the work itself, I have, as it was been pointed out to me more than once, not only do I choose difficult subjects, a lot of times I choose difficult materials. I mean, such as making chain mail for the onesies, or I'm doing some wire work put with some knitting could have easily done it with thread, but it won't make the same impact that I want. Right. So I do, I do have a tendency, but that to me is what part of the fun is, <laughs> is, is I have this image of what I want, you know, of what I'm trying to convey. It's, you know, when you make concepts visual, you know, one is how do you do that? And two when I have the image of what I think will work visually, which sometimes does and sometimes doesn't, but I mean, that's the way I want to do it, regardless of what, whether the techniques or the materials are difficult to work with. But I'd love to be able to figure out how to get the word 
the work more widely seen, which is more frustrating for me, you know, because that's, you know, when you're pursuing getting people to see your work, you're not working. Right. That part of pursuing getting it seen is not my favorite thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's probably true among many, most, probably not all, but close to all art making people. Yes, definitely. (laughs) And I have been a small business owner. So, you know, I know that part of being in business for yourself is there's work you do that you don't get paid for. You know, that's all about the promoting and the this, that, and the other, the the bookkeeping and what have you that you have to do. And it's like, I have to keep reminding myself as an artist, that's just part of being an artist. If you want your work seen, you have to do this ex- other work that isn't the work you'd prefer to do. And it's no different than any other business, but it's still not easily done for me. Right. So how do you stay moving and not stagnant? So kind of what happens to me is, I don't know if stagnant is quite the right word. I will come to places when I finish like that exhibit even though I knew six months before I needed to start thinking about what I wanted to do next. And it was in the back of my mind. I did not do a very good job with that. And so once that artwork was delivered, it's like, what are you going to do next? And so I ended up, which happens after every major thing that I finish, that there's this period of time where I'm kind of floundering around deciding, what do you want to do next? Next. And where are you going to go? And what? And then it's a matter of what catches my attention. I have sketchbooks and journals that talk about ideas about different things. And occasionally I do go back and look at them. But in Big Magic, Elizabeth Gilbert talks about the ideas moving on when you don't pay attention to them. Yes. And so it's like, well, that one's gone because I don't want to do it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And that one went away. And the only one that hasn't gone away is endings. And I still am resisting doing it. And I don't know, I may have to. But at this point, (laughs) like, no, I don't think so. Not right now. But it hasn't gone away yet. (laughs) (laughs) It's still talking to you. It's still talking to me. I have a friend who's a basket weaver and her comment was, is I waited four years for this project to go elsewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I am now on my fifth attempt to make it work. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking, dang, this one may not go away. (laughs) (laughs) It's still hanging around. It's still hanging around. And I got, you know, lots of pages and pages and pages of writing and thoughts about what kind of images I want to do and where I want to go with the piece uh, pieces and what have you, but I haven't started it yet. Sounds like you did start it. Well, I did except, well, I suppose the execution phase is the part that hasn't started. Yeah. So the other projects that I had all written about and what have you, there's not even any desire to start the execution phase. So it's like, okay, it went. A couple of them were really interesting, but they're gone. (laughs) (laughs) They're no longer really interesting. Nope, somebody else got them. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, there's only so much time to do the things, right? You can't do them all. Yes, yes. And time didn't used to matter to me. But as I'm looking at 70 now, it's like, uh, wait a minute, you're running out of time. (laughs) So now you need to be a little more focused. And whatever it is that you need to get out, you need to do it. That's now in the back of my brain. Does that add energy or does that add stress? It isn't adding stress at this point. Anything that's floundering around business has been a much shorter process than before because I already am working on the next piece. And, you know, I don't know if there'll be more than one piece in this particular series. I usually work in series, three or four pieces, sometimes more. But I do sometimes make a one-off. And I don't know if this is a one-off or part of a series yet, but I do know what that piece is. And at the same time, I'm exploring some other other things I want to do, some other techniques that I, I think I want to incorporate in my work in the future. So you usually do sets of three or four. A set of 19 was enormous. Yeah, that's about two years worth of work. Depending on the size of the gallery, 19 pieces might not be enough. I might need two to three times that. Although for the size of the gallery, I will say that that was more pieces in the gallery than they would normally do. But the way the curator installed it, it made a huge, it was when you walked in the room, there was a big impact, which was her point. Oh, nice. Yeah. But say I would at least need double that work for a a solo show somewhere else. And it's like, do I want to do 36 pieces on the same topic? (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. It has been so fun talking to you. And it, it occurs to me that I'm going to need to put a content warning. Ah, yes. On this episode, which is just kind of telling yeah. For how we deal with these issues. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, when I was attempting to get, the reason I ended up curating Unmade Bed as an exhibit was because the response from a lot of the places that I submitted the work to be seen was, oh, we can't have this. Children can see it. And I will say that my thought process every time was we can sell nine-year-olds for sex but we can't tell our children about it. And do you really think that they don't already know? Maybe some nine-year-olds don't, but most teenagers do. Right. So, And the um, ones who don't need to know so that they don't get drawn into that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, don't you want to not have them picked up by a trafficker? Generally preferred. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's part of that, you know, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil thing. Yes. But it's standing there on your corner. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So if people would like to see your work or buy it, where can they go? Where can we send them? Okay. The website is called Long Walk Home studio.com great it it'll be in the show notes so you can go to 
ordinarychaospodcast.com and find that link and click on it and see Deborah's work. And if you want just the exhibit information for What If, art-whatif.com. Excellent. We'll put that in the show notes as well. It has all the individual um, pieces there, as well as the artist statements for each of them. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Heat. Our editor is Heat G Check, co-editor Rocket Kid, produced by Heat G Check. To learn more about me, Heat, or more about this podcast, go to ordinarychaospodcast.com. Sound design and recording by Keith Kelly. You can learn more about Keith and his work at www.keithbkelly.com. Cobra Storm by Rocket Kid and Cat Girl. Ordinary Chaos is an ad-free podcast. Because ads are annoying. To support the podcast, go to ordinarychaospodcast.com. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. <laughs> <laughs>